Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. creatures, the paranormal, aliens and UFOs, forbidden knowledge, ancient mysteries, conspiracies, and more. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Coming up on today's episode is an absolutely wild saga from the American Southwest involving high strangeness, paranormal activity, and alien attacks. But before I get started, make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening and also make sure to turn on your notifications and auto downloads so you never miss a new episode. Well, spring is in full swing here in New England. It's been super nice out for the past week, so I hope you're all enjoying some nice weather too wherever you're listening from. I've got a ton of outside projects to do. My lawnmower is in the shop and it looks like I need a new one. So the grass in my lawn is very tall right now, but hey, it's uh, it's good for the bees, right? Anyway, this episode is going to be really jam-packed, so I'm going to get into things pretty quick here. I just wanted to give a quick reminder that Monster Fest in Canton, Ohio is happening on Saturday, June 3rd at the Doubletree by Hilton. It's going to be an all-day event like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's coming up real fast, so make sure to get tickets. You can head on over to smalltownmonsters.com to purchase those in advance. They're a little bit cheaper buying them ahead of time versus getting them the day of the show. There's going to be a lot of great speakers in the cryptozoology and high strangeness fields. There's going to be a lot of awesome vendors. I've got a table lined up, of course, so you'll be able to find me slinging strangeology merch. Definitely stop by and say hello. I always love the support and chatting with folks who come to the shows who have stories or just want to say hello. The only other event that I have lined up for this year is the Sasquatch Festival and Calling Contest, which happens in Whitehall, New York on September 30th. So it's a little ways away, but make sure to mark your calendars, especially if you're in New England or upstate New York. It's a really great show. I had a blast last year. Lots of people. It's like this big craft fair for Bigfoot themed stuff. And at the end of the day, they have a Bigfoot calling contest, of course, where people go down to the waterfront on the river and do their best Bigfoot calls, kind of like you see in uh, Finding Bigfoot. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. Now, let's get into the episode. This is part one of the story of Stardust Ranch and the man who fought aliens with a samurai sword. This is a really crazy story, so make sure you grab a snack and a drink and sit back and relax as 
we just get real weird with it. Let's go. Welcome to Stardust Ranch. Now, there is a lot to this story, and that's an understatement. I'm going to do my best here to be cohesive with this whole thing. And I want to preface this episode by saying that I don't know if any of these stories are true, but it's a very compelling story to say the least. And I should also preface this by saying there are some accounts of animal mutilation, abduction scenarios, and descriptions of violence. So listener discretion is advised. To start this story, we're going to first travel back to 1996, where a recently married couple, John and Joyce Edmonds, were looking for a property in the greater Phoenix area of Arizona. At the time, John was 37 years old, and he was feeling burnt out with his social work and counseling practice near Glendale. Joyce, on the other hand, his wife, had worked in a clerical capacity for the FBI in their Phoenix offices. John had a million and one business ideas, but he loved animals and he wanted to pursue this dream of owning a horse rescue business. One day, their realtor that they had hired had told them about this quaint ranch out in the Rainbow Valley area in Buckeye, Arizona, which is about 45 minutes to an hour southwest of Phoenix beyond the Estrella Mountain Range, the very same mountains where the Phoenix lights were seen only a year later in 1997. So they meet up with their realtor at the ranch to check out the home and the property. It's on this 10-acre parcel, and the current home was built in the late 70s, It also came with several outbuildings like a workshop, a guest house, stables, everything they needed to operate a business that John wanted to start. It even had a nice in-ground pool in the back of the house. And in the Southwest, a lot of these houses have like a a brick wall that surrounds the back of the house just because it's open desert and you don't want anything wandering in the backyard. And it was on the market for quite some time. And it seemed like the owners were motivated to sell, although they weren't present during the showing. The home was staged perfectly. The kitchen was stocked. There was nice artwork arranged tastefully all around the home. There were these exquisite carpets, nice furniture, bedroom sets, an immaculate bathroom with fresh unused towels and soaps and all all this stuff. It was almost like this model home just hanging out in the middle of the desert. And according to the realtor, this place was just a second home for the current owners. John fell in love with this place almost immediately and put in a cash offer for the place. He basically put his entire life savings into it. Joyce, on the other hand, wasn't so sure about moving from Glendale, where they had been living, to this ranch out in the middle of nowhere. Maybe it was the lifestyle change, being out of a more populated area, or maybe there was something in her gut that was telling her something was off with this place. So they closed on the ranch and became the new owners. It took John and Joyce about a month to get their affairs in order to get things packed up from their old house and to move into the ranch. And on move-in day, they drove a U-Haul truck to the place and John walks up to the gate, unlocks it, and both he and Joyce 
park their moving truck in the driveway area near the house and they unlock the door to the house and they step in. It was around 11 o'clock in the morning. And this is kind of the first sign that things weren't quite what they seemed. Apparently, the previous owners had all month to move out their belongings, but everything was still there the way it was when they put an offer in on the place during the showing. Now, John was pretty ticked off, understandably. Joyce was apparently more curious than angry, but John pulled out his cell phone and called his realtor to find out just what was going on. He told him that everything was still in the house, all the furniture, the fridge was still stocked, the bathrooms still had fresh towels, everything was untouched, even the television was still there. So he thought that the current owners maybe changed their minds or something and didn't want to move out after all. So the realtor assured John that he would try to get in touch with the previous owners that day and they could probably get it sorted out by the evening. So John and Joyce are like, okay. And they decided to drive into downtown Buckeye to kill time. They went to go see a movie, get lunch, and they returned in the early evening expecting to find an empty home to move into. And to John's surprise, the whole place had actually been vacated. There was nothing left inside. And he's like, how the hell did they move everything out so fast? I mean, the home itself is over... 3,400 square feet, and it would have taken a team of people working nonstop for hours to get everything out of there. They basically had one afternoon, which I guess it isn't out of the realm of possibilities. However, this is when things took a turn for the bizarre. John and Joyce were happy that it seemed like the realtor got everything taken care of, so they decided they were going to wait until the morning to start moving things in since it was getting kind of late and they were tired. They were sleeping there that night, so the only thing they grabbed out of the moving truck was their mattress, and they were just going to put it on the floor so they had a place to sleep. Now, before they turned in for the night, John decided to take a stroll around the property. He's pretty happy with this decision and really excited about the future. Eventually, he winds up turning on the light for the walled off backyard and he is walking back there. This is where the in-ground pool is. And he looks down at the pool and to his shock, he saw that literally everything that was inside the house that morning had somehow been thrown into the pool. The refrigerator was in there, the washing machine and dryer, all of the furniture, bedroom sets, kitchen appliances, all of the silverware, paintings, clocks, towels, and extra clothing that was stored there. Everything was in the pool. And John's standing there like, what the hell is going on? He figured that the old owners did it, maybe out of spite or that the realtor had hired some disgruntled workers to move everything out and they just wanted to mess with the Edmonds. It would have been less effort to pull a moving truck up to the front door of the house than walk the distance to the backyard to the pool, which perplexed John quite a bit. There was so much stuff that the previous owners could have even taken everything and sold it to a secondhand furniture store. 
something besides literally treating everything like trash. There was probably, John estimated, over $10,000 worth of stuff. It was just really, really weird. So, again, John hops on the phone with his realtor, and he's furious, demanding to know what happened. And his realtor assured him that he didn't hire anybody to move any of the previous owner's belongings out of the house. And in fact, he wasn't even able to get in touch with the previous owners or arrange anything for that day to get all the stuff out because the previous owner's phone number wasn't even in service anymore. And then the realtor basically tells John that they have all this free stuff to enjoy and it's not his problem anymore since John paid cash for the property. Now, eventually, John did get everything out of the pool. It took a long time to do and he left things on the side of the road for free and ultimately he never figured out how any of it happened. Although, as we get deeper into this story, I'm sure he probably came up with some theories as to how everything went down. Now, the pool incident left John a little paranoid, and he decided to arm himself with a 357 Magnum, just in case there were weirdos out there messing with him and the property. And eventually, over the years, he would come to own quite a collection of firearms, apparently. Now, after several months of living at Stardust Ranch, John was outside one day while Joyce was at work. He saw this man walking down the main road, and then this guy started heading towards the property gate and came in and started walking up the driveway towards John, who was outside just kind of milling about. Now, this guy apparently looked pretty rough. He was kind of gaunt in the face. He wore this army-style shirt with cut-off sleeves over a t-shirt with worn-out jeans and black boots. He had this salt-and-pepper beard, long gray hair, and these yellow and decayed teeth. John said that he looked a little bit like Willie Nelson, I guess, if you can picture that. Uh, Now, he was pretty weary of this guy. He has no idea who this is and having coming from a counseling background before he bought the ranch, there was something that he could pick up that was intense about this stranger. The thing that stood out to John the most though was that this guy was holding a 24-inch machete in one of his hands. Now, John had been keeping his 357 Magnum on him, so he put his hand on it just in case, not being sure what this guy was planning. So this guy comes up within 10 feet of John. They square up, check each other out. And John asks this guy if he can help him. And the stranger is like, I live here. And John's like, excuse me? This man then pointed his machete over at this storage shack on the property and said that that was where he lived. John had been in that shed before and there was never any sign of human occupation in it. So John is like, sorry, I I don't have any arrangements with you for work or anything like that. Like maybe this guy was a worker or a ranch hand on the property for some previous owner or something like that, which is probably what was going through his head. But this stranger's response to that stuck with John for years. He said to John, I kill the monsters which made John pretty uneasy, as you can imagine. 
and determined to get this guy to leave his property. He was basically like, I don't want you here. I need you to leave. The stranger then cocked his head and said, you're going to regret that. Turned around and walked away, which was really strange. And he never saw this guy again, but it was definitely a foreboding moment for everything that would start to unravel on this property. Another almost immediately and glaring thing that was weird with this ranch was this infrastructure in place on the property for 30 phone lines. The Edmonds needed to set up phone service with the local telecom business, Southwestern Bell, which is a subsidiary of AT&T. So John calls to schedule for a technician to come out and get the phone set up. And he's supposed to be coming out the next day. And it's one of those, oh, they'll be there in this certain window of time. So John sets aside time for this four hour time window that they told him a tech would stop by. Those four hours passed and it looked like he got no showed. So he calls the phone company again and sets up another appointment. This time it's going to happen three days away. And when that day comes and goes again, he gets no showed. So he calls the company back on his cell phone because obviously there's no other landline at the moment that's operational on the ranch. And at this point, he's getting pretty annoyed for them just not showing up. And he asks to speak with the manager. So he gets through to this manager and she asks him for his address and apologizes for the inconvenience and asks for his patience while she looks up his property records. And after about five minutes, it seemed that the property had quite the history with the phone company. And when she finally starts speaking again, she explains that their technicians are independent subcontractors and that the phone company can't make them do something they don't want to do or go to a property they don't want to go to, apparently. Seems kind of sus. Uh, so she reveals to John that the property, Stardust Ranch, had a reputation and was basically blacklisted from ever getting service for some reason. John then asks about what kind of reputation this place had, to which the manager responded, a strange one, that service technicians are afraid to go to this property because of bad things that have happened there in the past, and then she wouldn't elaborate any further. The manager asked John for two hours to sort this out for him, and of course, that time came and went, and he didn't hear back from this woman, so he calls back and asks to speak with her, but nobody could get a hold of this person or had heard of anyone by her name that worked for the phone company. So John's like livid at this point. This woman was supposed to have things worked out for him and to get an appointment with one of these subcontractors who was willing to go out and install a phone line and he's blown off again. So he decides that he needs to cool off and give it a couple days before calling back. The next day, however, he's just hanging around and this white truck pulls up to the property and it's a phone technician who's there to install the phones. He watches this guy from the window outside and he gets out of the truck and he's looking really nervous and on the defense like something was going to come out and attack him. And he starts reluctantly walking up to the house once he sees that the coast is clear. And John opens the door, 
lets him in, shakes his hand. And while the tech was working, John thought that he would ask if he knew anything about the property as he wasn't from the area and had only just moved in. This question seemed to kind of cut the tension in the air and the tech lightened up a bit, realizing that John didn't know anything about this property. So he proceeded to tell him a little bit of the history. As it turns out, the main house on the property, the one he and Joyce lived in, was constructed by a man in 1977 who bought the property and spent months building a dream home for he and his wife. Now, when the wife saw the house when it was done, she refused to ever live there. She hated it. (laughs) And if he forced her to live there, she would file for divorce. But apparently they came to some sort of agreement and the wife did move in with her husband. But true to her word, she eventually did divorce this guy. Now, after that, the property was sold to a horse betting business, which explained all the phone line infrastructure in the home. The business also had a dark underbelly, and at some point it opened up a brothel. So there's prostitution going on and horse betting. Now, according to this phone tech, the owners of this business were actually part of a right-wing extremist group called the Sons of Gestapo. This group had apparently been involved in the derailing of an Amtrak train in the 90s, and this was based on a letter that was found at the crash scene. However, nobody had heard of them before the event, and nobody has heard of them since. And there were also theories that it was the work of some other anti-government group or maybe somebody with a grudge against Amtrak. But eventually, the betting and prostitution operation was shut down and Maricopa County made off-track betting illegal. So the phone tech also went on to claim that there was this shootout at the ranch between federal agents who were investigating the Sons of Gestapo. However, there's no other information out there officially to corroborate those claims. Either way, the property apparently had some urban legends already built up around it and this reputation had people kind of sketched out who didn't really want to go around and deal with it. It seemed that there was blood on the property, if you will. So after that whole ordeal, the property was sold to a family who were from Mexico that ran a cattle business for a few years and then tragedy struck when the family's son took his own life on the day of his high school graduation. So an apparent confirmed death did happen in the house. And perhaps there were other things too that John wasn't aware of that could contribute to this growing presence that he and Joyce would find themselves ensnared in. Now, as time continued to press forward, strange things slowly started to manifest and reveal themselves. John would spend his days tinkering around the ranch, fixing things up, and letting his dogs run around the ranch while Joyce worked in the city at the FBI. Apparently, he had like four pairs of Rottweilers since he was a huge dog lover. So to him, things were going pretty well. He was happy. And John would also occasionally take his Jeep off-roading out into the desert to explore the mountains and the wilderness there. And it was around this point in time that he began to notice strange lights in the sky at night around the desert that didn't seem to be from any conventional aircraft. 
And yes, there is an Air Force base nearby the Astoria Mountains, the Barry Goldwater Range, which is just east of where Stardust Ranch is. But he described these lights as being able to disappear and reappear and dance around the sky. And they would also zip across the horizon in the blink of an eye. Joyce was skeptical about what John had seen when he explained it to her. But then these lower to the ground orbs of lights, these these ghost lights and UFOs in the sky would begin to appear right over Stardust Ranch at night and within their backyard even. So John claimed that he was never really a UFO enthusiast or anything like that. He was aware of that world, but seeing these bizarre unexplained lights seemed to open his mind to there being other possibilities out there. And there are actually photos floating around the internet that show strange formations of lights in the skies and around the ranch that John and Joyce would take over the years. Some of them, I think, could be planes, but the jury is out on some of them, at least. I'll try to link a few in the show notes. Now, after a few months of living on the ranch, John said that he was beginning to notice some kind of presence there that would affect his mood, and it seemed like some kind of paranoia would begin to fill his mind. Weird occurrences also started to happen more frequently. John described instances where electricity in rooms in the house or around the ranch wouldn't work, or for example, a power tool he was using on a project wouldn't turn on, and it should have turned on anytime he went to check the fuse box, everything was fine and in working order. And then after a few moments, the power would be back on as if nothing happened. I suppose that could be explained by maybe like bad power infrastructure, or maybe the local power company was doing a brownout, something like that. But John seemed convinced that something weird was going on. Other high strangeness that began to creep into the situation were also missing objects. For instance, he would put his cell phone down in a place where he always put it. He knew where it was and would go off to do something. And then he'd come back a couple hours later and his phone would be gone. The same thing would happen to his car keys, like they would just vanish into thin air. There were also several times where he'd be working on a project around the ranch and he'd be using a tool and he'd put it down for a moment, turn around, and then when he turned back to pick it up, it would be gone. And the strangest thing of all was that eventually after a few minutes or hours or days, whatever the thing was that went missing would reappear exactly where he left it. It's almost like a portal opened up and the tool or his keys or whatever object would fall through and then rematerialize later. This missing objects phenomena is not unknown in the realm of high strangeness, and it's kind of a common occurrence in these kinds of situations. Now, this missing object phenomena happens so often that with John's clinical background in counseling and therapy, he thought he might be developing Alzheimer's or he might be having some kind of mental break, which as far as I understand, he got himself checked out or he knew enough that he understood it wasn't the case, apparently. And I should note that at this point, Joyce was well beyond the sentiment of wanting to move. 
she didn't like it there at all. And this was only a few months into their time on the ranch, which actually lasted up until 2022. As this phenomena continued to happen, John realized that before something disappeared, it was almost like there was this pressure change on the property. And the horses that they were keeping on the ranch and his pet dogs would become unusually agitated, like something was going on. So he started to take that as a sign that this phenomena was about to take one of his things or manifest in some way. John explained that when he was home alone and Joyce was at work, if he expressed anger, and he did quite a bit as the frustration grew around all of the weirdness he was experiencing in the home, and the property itself seemed to respond to it in a physical way. It was like it was messing with him. Uh, you know, like in Ghostbusters 2, when they're yelling and insulting the ectoplasm in one of those glass beakers and it starts to bubble up the more they swear at it? <laughs> kind of made me think of something like that. And in the meantime, Joyce was like never in the house. So she wasn't experiencing any of this. She was working all day and into the evening. And then pretty much the only time she was at the house was when she was sleeping. Now, apparently poltergeist activity would start manifesting inside the house, like objects would move by themselves. There were times where plates in the kitchen were securely placed in cabinets or on the counter and they would fly out of the cabinets or off the counter and break all over the floor. Their refrigerator would physically rock back and forth by itself. Their TV and their stereo system would turn on by itself at maximum volume in the middle of the night, which is disturbing. Uh, and at this point, Joyce had taken on the second job, so she's home even less. And she, like I said, was only home late at night and had no idea what all this stuff was going on that John was dealing with. Maybe with the exception of the TV and the stereo system turning on late at night and making an absolute ruckus in the living room. Now, John knew that Joyce wanted off the property, so he kept his experiences quiet. And it was like, yeah, I'd probably get the hell out of Dodge if it were me. But listening to interviews with John and other writings that are out there, it seems like he was really hesitant to sell it until the mid-2010s because of the money that he invested, pretty much all of his life savings and wanting to chase this dream of having a ranch and a horse rescue business, and that he thought that he would be able to handle whatever was thrown at him and Joyce. He was the man of the house. He had a lot of pride. He felt that he could handle it. But as you'll see, things only get crazier from here. Now, in this next part, things start to take a darker twist. So if you don't like hearing about things like animal mutilations, definitely skip ahead a few minutes. So there's a lot of animals that were on Stardust Ranch and Hopeful Hooves, which was the Edmonds horse rescue business. Like I mentioned before, John had this dream of running this thing. So it was this nonprofit horse rescue business. At certain times, they would have up to 18 horses that were stabled there. And also John loved dogs a lot. They had cats. So the place is like this animal sanctuary. And when it was time to sleep, John would make sure that all the horses were in their stables and safe. John would crate his dogs outdoors under one of the large structures on the property outside 
away from the house. It was kind of like a built-in kennel for the property. And John would get up early every day, like at 4 a.m., to help Joyce out while she got ready for work by making coffee and breakfast so she didn't have to worry about that as she had a hour-long commute into the city to go work at her FBI job. And after Joyce would head off to work, John would begin his routine of checking on the animals. One day, however, John learned that whatever force was occupying the ranch with them had turned sinister. John was walking towards the kennel building and was around 25 yards away and could see that something was off. When he got to the crates, he saw that the one that held his favorite dog had been somehow opened overnight. Now, John loved his dogs, especially this one, and he was meticulous about locking up the crates, so it seems doubtful that he would forget. It is possible that someone could have come onto the property, but there was a gate at the main road that they locked at night, and if you were going to open one crate, why not open them all? Sure, I guess that that system wouldn't deter everyone, but at the time, they were one of the only houses on the road for some distance. And if you look at Google Maps now, you'll see there's several lots that have been developed, but the oldest one of those really only got constructed a few years after John and Joyce moved in. It was like the late 90s. So most of them, and I checked it out on some property records, were developed after the year 2000. So who or what would come around and target John's favorite dog? Was it the guy with the machete or was it something else? Well, John looked around and only a few yards away from the crate, he saw his dog and it was dead, like really dead. In John's mind, this wasn't the work of a human. He realized that whatever had been messing with him in the house had spread out to the property grounds and was becoming far more aggressive and violent. Now, John went on to describe the manner in which his dog was killed. Somehow, its body was flattened like a pancake, like it was run over by a steamroller. It was completely exsanguinated of all blood and all its organs. He said that it was, it was completely flat, like no thicker than a manhole cover, and it was the grounds around were clean. There was no blood, no guts, anything like that. It seemed like it was physically impossible for the dog carcass to be there. And he also realized that when something was up around the ranch, the dogs would usually bark a lot. But the night prior, he didn't wake up in the middle of the night hearing anything. No dog putting up a fight. And all the other dogs that he had, the other seven didn't make a sound, and when he even went out to go check on the dogs, none of them were making any noise. And so John was completely furious, and that was the day that he decided to declare war on whatever this presence was, and he decided that it was time to tell Joyce of all the weird things that were going on, and how could he explain that his number one dog got stomped flat, like just totally unexplainable. Now, this kind of violence apparently didn't stop with John's favorite dog. And when he told Joyce, she was pretty much flabbergasted at it. And she was like, why would anyone do this? And John's like, I have no idea. And this violence 
didn't stop with John's favorite dog. After some time, the rescue horses on the property started to be targeted as well. And it was seemingly at random and the same kind of silence in the night would happen. John would wake up the next morning having heard no commotion or anything to suggest foul play was going on and would find one of the horses completely eviscerated on the property. He would find that there were surgical cuts and similar hallmarks to other cattle mutilations around the world that involve some kind of sinister force, whether it's aliens or some kind of clandestine group abducting animals for experiments. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The manner in which it was done and the amount of work and manpower that it would take, John stated that he believed even a team of skilled animal surgeons wouldn't be able to accomplish what he would continue to witness over the course of one night. I mean, horses are pretty big animals and to have no sign of any other blood or struggle was just crazy. Now, the Edmonds couldn't predict when these mutilations would happen. Mostly, it seemed that one event would occur and then enough time would pass for them to forget about it. And then it would happen again all throughout the years that they lived there, which was 20 plus. So despite the intensifying high strangeness, John and Joyce decided to remain on the ranch. It seems that John felt he could handle whatever was thrown at him. But then... Beyond strangers showing up, UFOs in the sky, ghost lights, and their animals being killed in unbelievable fashion, along with poltergeist activity in their home, the force on the property began to turn its sights on them personally. On certain mornings, John and Joyce would wake up with strange markings on their bodies, which had to have occurred throughout the night. And at first, Joyce didn't really notice or pay much attention to the things that were happening to her body, but they would find unexplained markings like cuts and puncture marks, bruises, strange areas of depressed skin like they were branded with something. And there was one day when John was watching TV in the living room, just relaxing in the middle of the day, and he suddenly felt this red hot burning sensation out of nowhere on the back of one of his calves. And it was so bad that he screamed out in pain And when he looked down at his leg, there was this fresh, bright red brand mark that had apparently materialized right there on his leg, and he could still see smoke coming off from his skin. I don't know. I think if all else, I would have been like, well, (laughs) time to burn the whole place down, throw the whole thing out, and uh, get a new house that's far, far away. (laughs) This force, it seemed, was playing the long con, starting out with more subtle intrusions into the lives of the Edmonds, only to get more and more brazen and deliberate as the years went by. Now, this next part of the story gets really weird, and it involves encounters with doppelgangers, which would be like your twin that exists somewhere out in the world or looks a lot like you. These ones, though, are of a more supernatural variety. I mean, look at what the Edmonds had been dealing with here. 
So one Friday night, several years into living at Stardust Ranch, John and Joyce decided to go out to dinner in Phoenix. They were going to have some well-deserved, fancy Tex-Mex. So they're getting ready, and John is good to go pretty much immediately, of course. (laughs) Uh, And so he's waiting around in the living room watching some TV until Joyce is ready. And after a while, he hears Joyce walk up behind him and hears her say, I'm ready to go. And she's in this red dress looking her best, right? So they hop into John's Jeep. And after he makes a sweep of the property to make sure everything's okay with the animals, they do the 45 minute drive into the city and the drive's going fine. They're connecting with conversation. She's telling him about her work at the FBI and he's telling her about new projects he was planning around the house and how he wants to get more dogs. And, you know, it's this pretty innocuous back and forth conversation by any stretch of the imagination. Now they get to the restaurant and they get their seats. They're looking through the menu and they order some appetizers and drinks. And after they place the initial order, Joyce gets up and she says she's got to go to the ladies room. Nothing weird about that. Now, John had decided to take his cell phone off his belt clip as it was pinching his waist from sitting down at the table. The phone had been turned off this whole time, but he decided to turn it on, even though he wasn't expecting to be called by anybody. Maybe there was this little voice in his head that made him do it. I'm not sure. But when he turned it on, it started beeping with voicemails and missed call notifications. And they were all from the ranch. And in that moment, John got this pit in his stomach, like, who the hell is in my house calling me? So he checks the most recent voicemail, and to his shock, it's Joyce, who was screaming into the phone, demanding to know where he was and that she can't believe that he left the house without her. And meanwhile, John's like, if Joyce is back home, who is the woman that I came here with that's currently in the bathroom? So he scans the room real quick to see if this other Joyce, this imposter, was headed back to the table yet. She wasn't out of the bathroom yet, so John quickly dialed the house, and the real Joyce picked up, and she's pissed off, demanding an explanation, and he's like, look, I'm at the restaurant in Phoenix, and he's at a loss of words of what to say. He has no idea what's going on. He basically told her there's forces at work that he can't explain and that he was going to leave the restaurant immediately and head back home. Now, after the phone call, he waited for this apparent doppelganger of his wife to come back to the table. And sure enough, she comes out of the ladies room and sits back down at the table. In this moment, John realized that he hadn't looked at her, I guess we'll call it a thing. I don't know. Uh, He hadn't looked at this thing in the eyes since leaving the house. So he looks at it and whatever this thing was could see the shock in John's face. And in that instant, its eyes completely blacked out, you know, like the demons in Supernatural, the TV show, like where are Sam and Dean Winchester when you need them? (laughs) And so John sees this and clearly this entity, whatever it is, knows that he knows now that she's not the real Joyce. And he pushes his chair back, stands up and books it out of the restaurant like a bat out of hell. 
without paying the tab, of course, the quickest dine and dash ever. (laughs) And he jumps into his Jeep and rushes back home to the ranch as fast as he could. Now, when he gets home, Joyce is sitting in the living room watching TV and clearly she had been crying and he's trying to explain how whatever force they've been dealing with at the house somehow physically manifested a doppelganger of her and allowed it to leave the property with John. And according to the story, this wouldn't be the last time that doppelgangers would come around and mess with them. There were other times where Joyce would experience a copy of John as well. It's a a super weird phenomenon for sure. Now, about 70 years had gone by since the Edmonds purchased the ranch. So it's around 2003. John and Joyce had become somewhat accustomed to all the high strangeness that continued to happen on their property and in their home. But it was at this juncture that things got really out there as if all the other things weren't out there already. A new twist on the missing objects phenomena that John had experienced early on began to take place. He would notice something was missing, again, like his car keys or his wedding ring. And whatever the object was that was missing would materialize out of thin air and drop onto the ground in front of him or behind him. Sometimes he said these objects would hit him in the head. And there was this distinct intuition that whatever this presence was, that it did not want the Edmonds there anymore. Over the years, John had accumulated a stash of weapons from guns and baseball bats to metal pipes and knives. And these weapons were placed all around the house, apparently, in convenient to get to locations. So he wouldn't need to run to another part of the house if something really wild started to happen. I'm not sure what that might do against something supernatural or paranormal. Maybe if you have an iron pipe, (laughs) since apparently iron's a thing with paranormal entities sometimes, but maybe it would make him feel more in control of the situation. John especially armed the bedroom because of the marks that they would continue to get on their bodies happened most of the time when they slept. So I think in his mind that maybe he would be able to catch whatever this entity was in the act and rather than have something immediately dangerous like a gun or a knife next to the bed he wound up opting for a baseball bat so in case it was the middle of the night and he was groggy from waking up he wouldn't actually hurt himself or Joyce and then it finally happened man this is the stuff of nightmares (laughs) so it's around 11 p.m at night John had gone to sleep around 9 30 And he was trying to fall asleep, but his mind wouldn't shut off. We've all been there at some point, right? And it was dead quiet in the home. And at that point in time, there weren't a ton of other houses that had been built up on the ranch yet. The local traffic pretty much stopped in the early evening, save for a random car driving down the main road. And John's in this kind of liminal state. He's not quite asleep yet, but still kind of fading in and out, almost sleeping. And then out of nowhere, he feels something touch his wrist, which is out of the blankets. And whatever this thing was, was cold and clammy. It then started to move up the inside of his forearm all the way up to his elbow. And instantly, John sprung up like, what the hell is touching me? He grabbed the bat next to his nightstand 
And he swung as hard as he could in the direction of whatever was touching him. And he made contact with it. He then heard what he could only describe as a hissing sound, like a deflating sports ball that was stabbed with a knife or something like that. John then turned on the light that was on his nightstand, and that's when he saw them. It wasn't one, it wasn't two, but three beings on the side of his bed staring at him. These things were around four feet tall and basically matched the classical description of a gray alien. These bulbous heads with large, almond-shaped eyes, very little facial features except for a tiny nose and a small slit for a mouth, skinny, spindly bodies, and he said their eyes, which were almost insect-like, were what disturbed him the most. And that's kind of a common theme, really, in a lot of abduction scenarios. It seems like the eyes are the thing that gets people. And he said he started to gear up to start wailing away at these aliens. But before he could do that, they vanished or phased out of our reality. Talk about creepy. And this was only the first of many, many encounters with these things. There were nights where he would wake up and they would be surrounding Joyce. They took a particular interest in her for some reason. Most of the time, though, if he was awake, he would get them to go away, either by trying to hit them with a bat or attack them with one of the other weapons that he had around the house. So now that these beings... The Greys, or Zeta Reticulans, whatever you want to call them, apparently knew that John was aware of them. And in situations like that, it sounds like they become much less subtle about their comings and goings around the ranch. Their visitations also began to happen much more often. They would show up during the day, the early evening, and would continue to intrude at night when he and Joyce were sleeping. But it only happened so often, kind of like the animal mutilations. An event would happen and then enough time would go on for John and Joyce to kind of get comfortable again and forget about the previous encounter. They'd let their guard down and then that's when these aliens would return. Eventually, John decided to up the ante as the baseball bat wasn't doing anything to these aliens. Neither was stabbing them with knives or doing hand-to-hand combat, which apparently happened on a number of occasions. And uh, yeah, the old fisticuffs with aliens, <laughs> if you can imagine it. So he decided that he was going to start trying to shoot at them with his guns instead. And this, to John's surprise, also did absolutely nothing. It was like they were cartoons. You'd shoot at them, and much like with the baseball bat hitting them square in the head, they'd make a hissing sound and maybe kind of recoil a little bit, but they didn't die. No matter how many bullets he emptied into them, they just seemed invincible. And then they would just kind of phase out of existence. John and Joyce decided they would try sleeping in separate rooms at that point, maybe as a way to throw the greys off and stay hidden in the night, but it didn't matter as they always found them wherever they went, which is, you know, scary. (laughs) And eventually John gave up on trying to shoot these things altogether because he was just wasting bullets at that point. And he started to try to devise a new way to deal with the threat. Another way that the Edmonds tried to combat this force on the ranch happened in the form of an exorcism. 
John had met with this accountant in town who was apparently the head bishop of the local Mormon church in Buckeye. And they got on to talking about what was going on at the ranch as the bishop had heard of its reputation of high strangeness and paranormal activity. John, for some reason, didn't mention that he had been fighting aliens. So the bishop assumed that whatever was happening was spiritual and demonic. So he actually offered to perform an exorcism. And after thinking about it for some time, John finally agreed to give it a shot. But when they showed up to perform the exorcism, it was the bishop and and two of these younger acolytes. They show up in this minivan, but when they start the, the ritual, everything goes wrong real fast. The plan was to basically clear the house by going through each room in it and performing the ritual and saying and reciting these prayers. And as they moved through the ritual, the house seemed to come alive. John mentioned that the pipes in the house started to creak and groan, which never happened at any time while they were living there. And as they got into the master bedroom, and John and Joyce are just like watching this whole thing unfold in the living room, one of the younger acolytes becomes very distressed. And the walls at this point were making banging noises, and there was this general malevolent energy in the air from the house. And the acolyte turned green in the face and started vomiting everywhere. (laughs) This is like straight out of the movies, right? Now, the bishop broke his concentration to tend to the acolyte, and everything just went south. The sounds in the house intensified, and this Mormon exorcist team made a break for the door. And the one who had got sick booked it to the minivan, hopped in, and locked the doors, only after puking again in the front yard. And the bishop and remaining acolyte turned around and tried to continue reciting the prayers outside to continue the ritual. And the sound from the house started coming outside and into, I guess it kind of like came up the well that was in the front yard. And it just sounded like this demon that was like about to mess their stuff up. (laughs) And that was enough for them. So they all got into the minivan and and sped off and never came back. So it would seem that beyond aliens, there might have also been this demonic presence in the house, or perhaps it's all one and the same, or perhaps the the ranch is some sort of interdimensional vortex or gateway, and somehow different types of entities and paranormal interdimensional beings are able to pass through at any time that they please, uh, similar to other window areas around the world where high strangeness occurs a lot. Now, it's of course no surprise at this point that weird stuff is happening constantly at the ranch, and there really is no safe haven there short of leaving the place altogether. John had become a bit of a light sleeper so that he could be ready at any noise or something being off in the master bedroom that could be a threat. John had woken up a number of times to find that Joyce was asleep, but also strangely and somehow levitating off the bed. At first he thought he was dreaming it, but as it turns out, according to him, he, she was actually levitating off the bed. John confirmed this once while seeing that she was hovering three feet above the mattress. That's kind of high up off the bed. (laughs) And he got up 
calling her name several times, trying to wake her up, but she was entirely unresponsive. He then checked around to see if there was anything potentially holding her up, but it looked like it was some kind of magic trick. He then grabbed her shoulders and shook her and yelled her name. Her eyes opened for um, just a split second and she looked at him, but then closed them almost immediately and was back asleep. John had to push her down to the bed and the next day she had no recollection of it or any of previous times that it had happened. Now, the more it happened, John noticed that her body was slowly starting to move away from the bed each time further and further towards the bedroom door. And there were even instances where Joyce was handcuffed to the bed to prevent her from floating away, or they suspected that they were being abducted by these alien beings as they were waking up with all these markings and wounds on their bodies. So they wanted to handcuff Joyce to the bed as the entities had taken a particular interest in her. Now, one night, John woke up and he found that Joyce wasn't in the bed and he ran out to the hallway and found her floating down it all the way to the living room. Now, he would always stop her body if she wasn't tied down in any way. And once he could get her to open her eyes, her body would descend slowly to the floor. She'd sit up and then kind of sleepwalk back to the bed. And she never had any memory of it happening for some reason. So it's just truly bizarre. Perhaps there was some kind of screen memory implanted if this was, you know, an, an attempted alien abduction event. But it gets even more bizarre. On the most intense night of this phenomenon, he claimed to have found her floating down the hallway. And no matter what he did, he couldn't get her to wake up. Eventually, her body headed towards the sidewall of the house and she phased right through it to the outside. And it's here that he described a tractor beam like force that was pulling her like something out of Star Trek. And he ran outside after her and found her body floating along a few feet above the ground. And he notices about 100 feet up in the sky above the ranch, there was a flying saucer sitting just stationary in the air. This was a metallic disc-shaped UFO, and it had this bluish-white light coming out of it, presumably the tractor beam. And it's just sitting there chilling. And so John decides to run back inside to grab his AK-47, and he runs back out. And now Joyce is almost underneath the center point of the craft, which one would... Uh, Presume that once she reaches that point, it might tractor beam her up into the craft. And John decides to open fire on it. And as soon as he starts emptying a banana clip into this UFO, which who knows if it's even doing anything, the beam of light stops immediately and then Joyce drops and hits the ground. And John looked back up and the UFO was gone. Now, at this point, Joyce fully woke up and for some reason, this time, she actually remembered what had happened. She remembered floating out of the bed, down the hallway, through the wall, and towards this UFO that was apparently trying to abduct her. Now, maybe this is how the aliens were taking them 
anytime they were abducted or maybe they were performing experiments in the bedroom in the middle of the night. It's just uh, unclear of how exactly and, and why exactly any of this was happening, really. Here's where the fun part of the story begins. One day in December, John was driving up near Phoenix and he had found himself behind this truck and it had been overflowing with all this stuff. His truck bed was completely full. He could see that there was a Christmas tree and a lot of other things that he couldn't really make out, boxes and tarps and whatever. (laughs) And he's expecting things to start flying off of this truck. And sure enough, when it hit a big bump in the road, a bunch of things just flew out into the road. And John tried honking at the truck to flag the guy down who was driving it, but whoever it was didn't pay attention and just kept driving. So John pulled over and picked up the things, and in a strange twist of fate, he found that one of the items was this samurai sword still in its scabbard. And he gets back into his Jeep, and he tries to catch up to this guy. But at that point, the driver of this truck was nowhere to be found. He had just kept driving, and John lost sight of him. Now in the possession of a literal samurai sword, John realized he had a really good opportunity to try something new against the greys. So he decided to keep it under his side of the bed so it would be ready whenever he needed it. Now, at this point, John had been able to witness the greys enter into our reality where from wherever it is that they come from. And he described it as looking like seeing a person peeking around a curtain and all that you can see is their face at first. Many times John would see this phenomena from his peripheral vision. One of these alien heads would pop out through a portal in the air as he was sitting on his couch in the living room watching TV. But if he looked over at the alien face, they would dematerialize and not bother coming through. They were more brazen in their comings and goings and their attacks, but apparently they still wanted to be a little bit on the down low, a little bit more secretive about popping into our reality. However, if he just used his peripheral vision and acted like nothing was going on, that's when they'd come through thinking the coast was clear. And it was always in groups of three. Although once they were in the house, they didn't really care if John noticed them or confronted them. One of John's ideas was that these things were from a higher dimensional plane than us, like we're in in the third dimension, right? And so these would be at least fourth dimensional. So this is why maybe they were able to manipulate reality, influence thoughts and emotions, and all sorts of other things plant memories in your head or wipe your mind, that kind of thing. It'd be like the closest analog would be like us versus uh, an ant colony or something like that. Now, apparently John at this point had become accustomed to and tuned into the pressure change in the air around him, which I mentioned earlier. And he learned that when it felt like that around him, he realized that the greys were near. And so in a way, he could kind of predict when they were about to commit an incursion into the house. 
Now, one day, John was working on a mechanical project in the living room while watching TV. He felt the pressure change and knew to keep calm. He noticed from his peripheral vision a portal opening up with this gray alien face poking through in the house's sunroom. So John gets up and discreetly walks to the master bedroom and grabs the samurai sword. He then places it next to the door frame to the master bedroom and goes back to sit on the couch to resume working on his project and watching TV. Now, he believed these entities were telepathic and could read minds. I mean, I think that's kind of common knowledge at this point for anyone who's familiar with the alien abduction phenomenon, ufology, and all that stuff. Not a new idea, but most abduction stories and encounters with supposed aliens talk about disability. So, John was trying to make sure his mind was in this clear Zen-like state so they wouldn't be able to pick up on his emotions and that he had an idea that they were about to hop into the house. So the three greys finally jump into the sunroom and that's when John walked back to the master bedroom, calm, cool, collected, and grabs the samurai sword. Now, there is this other hallway that goes down around the house where it's obstructed from view of the sunroom so he can sneak up and get the drop on these guys. And it's about to go down. So John heads down this hallway and they don't see him coming. He gets eyes on the one that seems to be the leader. And in his time dealing with these things, he realized that it seemed there was one leader and then two kind of underlings to the trio that would show up. So he unsheathes the sword from its scabbard and he locks eyes and he swings the sword in one clean stroke at the lead gray. And the result was that he cut its head off and the other two grays dematerialized immediately back to their dimension or their ship where wherever they go but apparently the body of the decapitated gray did not go it turns out that he actually killed it for the first time he found out how to take these things out and he found that when you do that the body doesn't teleport or phase out it seems like there was kind of like this uh beacon or antenna that would that was maybe installed into their bodies. Some people think the greys might be a biomechanical android of sorts. And once that connection is severed, their body can't beam back to wherever they're from. So now that John has this alien body, he decides to wrap it in plastic and stash it in a meat freezer. That night, Joyce comes home from work and she sees there's this brownish liquid that had stained the walls and the floor of the sunroom. And John explains to her what had happened. He had taken out one of these great aliens. And all she wanted to know was what they were going to do with the body. All right, folks, I hate to leave you on a cliffhanger, but this story is so huge and detailed and weird that I had to break it up into two parts. So make sure to tune in next time for 
more Stardust Ranch. There's going to be some crazy revelations and other bizarre incidents and stories involving the Edmonds and Stardust Ranch. You won't want to miss it. As always, thank you to everyone out there listening, downloading, and sharing the show with friends and family. This show wouldn't be possible without the support of listeners like you. It helps out a ton, and I'm always so grateful for you taking the time to hang out and get weird with me. Thank you so much. And if you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, there's a whole back catalog of Strangeology Beyond episode extensions over on Patreon.com if you want to go check that out. Some of these extensions are whole bonus episodes in and of themselves where I dive into another topic or have guests stay on for a little while longer for some off-the-cuff discussion or whatever. We have fun with it. There's other benefits as well, like ad-free episodes and early access to episodes episodes as well. You can get merch discounts to my shop, shoutouts, exclusive merch, and a lot more. There's even a t-shirt of the month club if you love cryptids. I've got a whole home state cryptid collection with over 60 designs. It's a good time. And a big shout out to all of the members of the show. You're all amazing and your support helps keep the lights on here at Strangeology. Thank you guys so much. And if you're looking for other ways to support the show, don't forget to check out my Etsy shop as well. If you like cryptid, alien, and otherwise Fortean merch, I've got a ton of different designs and items that you can get like t-shirts, tank tops, long sleeves, sweatshirts, blankets, stickers, magnets, pins, tumblers, mugs, poster prints. I've got my Homestake Cryptids large format print map of the whole big project that I did over two years. And I'm always trying to add in new designs and checking out different products that I can offer for enthusiasts of the strange and unexplained. Also, I just released a brand new Homestead Cryptid design for the Ohio Grassman, which is the Bigfoot of Ohio. I figured it would be nice to have a new Ohio design aside from the Loveland Frogman available at MonsterFest in a few weeks. So if you're going, you can snag one there or you can find it over on my Etsy shop now for sale. You can find this all at strangeology.etsy.com and definitely make sure to sign up for my email list. I send out occasional discount codes through email if you want to save a little bit of money. I'll have that all in the show notes. And finally, if you're looking for more content from me, make sure to give me a follow over on all of my social media accounts. I post short form video content on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. I also have a Twitter and I have a YouTube channel where I have some longer form video content and I have some new longer form video content in the works for there as well. All right, that's all from me for now. I'm going to take a short break, and when I return for Strangeology Beyond, the members-only section of the show, I'm going to dive into the story of another ranch that's full of high strangeness. Members, stick with me, and for everyone else, as I always say, take care of yourselves and each other, and keep it strange.
right, welcome back to Strangeology Beyond. I hope you enjoyed part one of the Stardust Ranch saga. I totally thought... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.